0: But today we are in Mark, we are in chapter 14, we're in verses 53 through 65, and if you've been with us, you know that we've been marching through, and so I will read that and then pray, and then we'll jump into the service, or the sermon, excuse me. Mark 14, starting in verse 53, and if you don't have your Bibles, you can find that in your bulletin. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you. It's already been said. Thank you for giving us the, the gift to be here, to worship you, the only true and living God. Thank you for your word. We pray that this morning Christ would be made much of, that I would be made less of, that even this church would be made less of, but Christ would be made much of, that Christ would be glorified in the way that we worship. God, we pray that same thing for other churches in the area, Cornerstone Community Church just up the road, and Berean Bible Church in Dublin. Lord, we're grateful for these churches proclaiming the gospel, and we pray that they would continue to do so and that they would be about your kingdom and not their own. We pray that you would allow them to see fruit, that they would stand firm in an age that is demanding them to bend the knee. God, we pray that we as a church would stand firm, that the only time we bend our knee would be to the Lordship of Christ. We pray that we would be an evangelistic people, that we would tell others about the Lordship of Christ, tell others about this Messiah, about this Savior would help us to see those opportunities and to step into them with boldness. Lord, we pray that as we do that, we would be salt and light in our community, that there would be something that is unignorable happening here. God, we pray for our state, for our Ohio Supreme Court, that you would give the judges on that court wisdom. Help them to exercise justice. Help them to judge righteously according to you and your righteousness, not man-made righteousness. Pray for our Supreme Court of the United States, that they too would have a wisdom. Or there are some major cases that are before them. Help them to judge righteously. God, we pray that as we look at the court case that goes on in this passage, that you would help us to see what is true. Shape us by your word. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Merriam-Webster defines a kangaroo court, not as a court for kangaroos, but as a court characterized by irresponsible, unauthorized, or irregular status, Or procedures so it's a court that would have the appearance of legitimacy while not actually being a court that follows the procedures and guidelines that it is meant to submit to we'd have the appearance that this is a legitimate court hearing but the verdict is decided well in advance and they know that it's to put it shortly it's a gross injustice it's when those who are here to judge righteously, act like they're doing it, when in reality they are, they've already decided what verdict it's going to be and that there is not any room for what may be truth, but there's only room for coming to the conclusion that they have decided must be the conclusion. It's a gross injustice. And so as we look at this passage, we can say this is essentially a kangaroo court based off what we read. And we'll dive into more of it. But as you read it, a question that may come out is, if God is perfectly just, why would he allow such gross injustice to happen to his son? If God is perfectly just, why allow such a gross injustice to take place with his son? And as we look at this, I'm hopeful that we will see that the reason that that takes place, because of the injustice done to Jesus, we may now be justified. Because of the injustice done to Christ, we may be justified. And as we look at it, I think we'll see a model for faithful suffering. We see Christ suffering unjustly here. We see a model for suffering well. Then additionally, we'll also see a, we'll be reminded of where our hope must be in the midst of suffering. So we'll see a model for suffering well and be reminded of where our hope must be in the midst of it. So if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know we've been going through Mark. That's been our steady diet. We've spent time in other places, but our steady diet has been the gospel of Mark. Been in it since December of 2020, and we are approaching the end. But we have said, as we've gone through it, that the overarching theme is God restoring his wayward people. Now, this book was written by John Mark, and he got a lot of his source material from Peter. And so when we look at this passage and we see some details around Peter's life, it's likely because he heard these very things from Peter himself telling him, hey, I was following Jesus in the distance. Here's what happened at that trial. I can tell you exactly what happened because I was there. And so if you're not familiar with the current passage here, let me just fill you in on some background that's taken place. So just a few hours earlier, Jesus and the disciples instituted the Lord's Supper. And then after that, they went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus was praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples were falling asleep. And then eventually this, you know, Judas and this group of guards and high priests and the Sanhedrin show up and arrest Jesus. And Judas' betrayal is complete. And now we see Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. He's now in front of The court, the kangaroo court, so to speak. He's on trial with the Jewish leaders. And in your bulletin, you'll see we have three divisions in the text that I want us to follow along with. So the first is a corrupt trial. The second is a true judge. And the third is an ironic verdict. A corrupt trial, a true judge, and an ironic verdict. So let's look at that first one. A corrupt trial. So Jesus, as we just said, is being led to this unjust trial, this kangaroo court. And we see Peter following from a distance. He's not following closely. He's following from a distance. And perhaps he's a little bit sheepish because he and the rest of the disciples fled and scattered from Jesus in verse 50, which isn't a great look considering in verses 29 and 31, they just promised that they'd be faithful to him. And Peter was at the, the front of that saying, I will die with you if I need to. And then just a little bit later, he flees. So he's falling from a distance now. But why is he falling from a distance? He's falling from a distance because he doesn't want to be publicly identified with Jesus. He doesn't want to be publicly identified as a follower of Jesus. James Edwards is talking about this. He says, how awkward Peter looks in the courtyard of the high priest trying to mingle with the henchmen who probably arrested Jesus and who will presently mock and beat him, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. Just a few chapters earlier in Mark, Jesus was telling those around him, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Jesus is costly question this morning is that you can you identify with what Jesus said of taking up your cross or can you more so identify with Peter who's trying to follow Jesus from a distance are you attempting to blend in with the world by following Christ from far off are you finding your comfort and your most natural comfort zone with the enemies of Christ We're all tempted in this way, but here's the truth, is that when we, when we attempt to follow Jesus from a distance by blending in with the world, we neither follow Jesus well, nor do we blend in well, as we're going to see, Lord willing, in, in next week's passage. We can't serve two masters. Jesus tells us such. But here's the thing, when we devote ourselves entirely to Christ, when he's our one master, we're actually more freed up to no longer be enslaved to what other people think. Peter's worried about what other people think here. He saw what happened to Jesus. He saw that they just arrested him and they're going to put him on trial. he, He knows essentially what's going to happen here. And he's worried that that could be him too. He's worried about what others think. But if you follow one master, then you're only concerned about pleasing that one master. If you try to divide your allegiance between two, like Peter here, and you will actually be more enslaved than if you were to just submit yourself to one. So with that in mind, let's look at this trial. So Jesus is led to the high priest and the Sanhedrin. So just as a reminder, the Sanhedrin is essentially the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. It's made up of 70 uh, religious leaders plus the high priest. And this is essentially modeled after, if you're curious, modeled after Moses' 70 elders that we see in Numbers 11. But with this Sanhedrin, there are strict rules to ensure that there is no injustice. They've got some strict rules in place. However, as strict as their rules are and as precise as they want to be to carry out true justice, they still don't have complete authority over the verdict. So what I mean by that is they typically do not have the power to carry out a death sentence because right now they're under Roman rule. And so as each individual is submitted to Roman rule, the Roman Empire, it says, you can't can't kill anybody in nearly all circumstances. You can carry out your justice, but if it comes to a death sentence, that needs to go through us. So which is why later on, they send Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. But this high priest is a man by the name of Caiaphas. And it doesn't say that in the text, but in Matthew 26, we're told that it's Caiaphas. And this individual interestingly enough, has already determined that Jesus' death must take place. He's already determined it. In fact, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation about a week earlier. We read in John 11. It says, Being high priest that year, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on, They made plans to put him to death. This is about a week earlier. They're trying to make plans to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas already knows the verdict. As soon as they get him in there, he knows, all right, we're going to find a way to make sure that he gets condemned to death. He was scheming to have Jesus executed, but little did he know that in his scheming, he was actually playing right into the plans of God. He said, we, we read there, that he knew that Jesus would gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so they decided that they were going to try to kill him. But little did he know that Jesus' death was the exact way that God would gather into one his children. It would be through Jesus' death. So when Caiaphas is playing to kill him, he's actually playing right into God's hand. It's amazing to see the sovereignty of God at work here to even use enemies of him to carry out his plans. So one of the ways that he tries to carry that out is through false witnesses, as we read in the text. So the Sanhedrin was looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Some said that uh, they heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. You see this, because it sounds familiar. You see this in John 2 where Jesus says something similar to that, but these testimonies that people are bringing to them, even though that sounds familiar, the testimonies didn't agree. Why didn't they agree? Because if you look closely at John 2, Jesus is not saying, I will destroy the temple. He's saying the temple will be destroyed. So you can imagine that as people are bringing false testimony, one person goes into the court and says, I heard him say, I will destroy the temple. And another person says, I heard him say, the temple will be destroyed. And so it doesn't quite line up. And so, because they can't seem to get two witnesses to agree on the same thing, they're in a problem. They have a problem, but they're in a predicament. They can't actually sentence him to death. They can't carry it out. Deuteronomy 17 says that there must be at least two witnesses to carry out a death sentence. And even in all their scheme, they can't get two witnesses to agree. And so, as we look at this and we continue to look at this passage, Something for us to note is that if you are a follower of Christ, there will be prices to pay. There is a cross to carry, and you will, at some point, perhaps not yet, but at some point you will be treated unjustly. But you've been given an example in Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says this about what's happening. Christian, are you trying to follow Jesus from a safe distance? Or are you entrusting yourself entirely to the one who judges justly? A couple of questions just to help identify that is, do your coworkers that you work with, that you see Monday through Friday, do they know that you're a Christian? Do your neighbors who you live next to, do they know that you're a follower of Christ? Now, hear me, I'm not saying be a pest. And every time you have a conversation with them, it's always going back, always going back. But have you gotten to that conversation? Are they aware that this individual, my neighbor, or my coworker who works over at the desk, three desks down, that person loves Jesus? If you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're talking a lot about justice this morning. And that is a very popular topic. It's a hot topic in our current cultural moment. And it's popular not just among Christians, but also among non-Christians. Why is that? Why is it that non-Christians get so fired up about justice? If we are ultimately just stardust, as scientist Carl Sagan insisted, if we are ultimately stardust, then any kind of injustice is just one piece of stardust bumping the wrong way into another piece of stardust. Why does that bother us so much? Why? The answer is because deep down we know we're made in the image of God, that we have value, that we are more than just dust, that we've been made in the image of a just God. And so therefore we care about justice. We define that justice the way that God's Word defines it. We'll talk more about that. But if you're a mom or a dad in the room, as we talk about suffering, I would encourage you, follow Christ even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's not convenient. If you want your kids to follow Christ and hold firm to Him as they grow up and experience difficult things, then give them a model for it now. Give them an example of what it looks like. And in so doing, not only will they have a model of what faithfulness to Christ looks like when it's difficult, but they'll also have convincing evidence that Christ is satisfactory. That when mom or dad are passed up for a promotion because they hold certain views, they're satisfied in Christ. That when the neighbors say something negative about your family because of the love they have for Christ, Mom and dad aren't, aren't shaken by that or shaken by that. By following Christ, even when it's difficult, you are equipping your kids to do the same. And then maybe you're in the room and you're hurting, or you're tired, you're exhausted. Perhaps you're currently suffering for your commitment to Christ or to the Word. I would encourage you to hold on. Today we read about Christ's suffering. But Lord willing, very soon we're going to be reading about Christ's victory. Hold on. Because all who hold on to the victorious one will taste victory with him. We're promised that. So we see here a corrupt trial, but we also see a true judge. So despite the false witnesses that are brought before Christ, the Sanhedrin, despite all the false things that they say about Jesus, Jesus remains silent. He doesn't revile back. He doesn't threaten back. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed when it talks about the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus. Jesus in this moment is undisturbed by what wicked men have to say about him. How often do we allow the words and opinions of the enemies of Christ to govern the way that we follow him? Don't be spiritually governed by those who are opposed to Christ. Don't let those outside of the household of faith rule over your spiritual faithfulness. However, even though Jesus is silent as all these testimonies are being brought, eventually he does speak. And it's when Caiaphas asks him a question. So it's interesting that despite the false witnesses, Jesus was silent. And now, in stark contrast to them, Jesus is a faithful witness. So there are false witnesses brought before the Sanhedrin. They can't seem to agree. And the man sitting there who they're trying to condemn, he is a faithful witness. He tells the truth. Caiaphas asks him, are you the Christ? This is in verse 61. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Oftentimes, we would refer to God as the blessed one. And so when Caiaphas is asking him, are you the Christ? He's asking, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior that's promised, who is the son of God? And Jesus answers honestly. He says, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the blessed. Which is significant Because up until now, as we've gone through Mark, we're in Mark 14, we're coming to the end of Mark 14. Up until now, each time that information has been revealed to us in the book, he's then told the person that he's saying it to to keep it to yourselves right now. He heals somebody, he says, don't tell anyone who I am. It's revealed to the disciples. He says, keep it to yourself for now. But now, when he's asked publicly, it's revealed. And so this messianic secret as some theologians call it, is now public knowledge for all those listening. He is, in fact, the Christ. He is the son of the blessed. But he doesn't just say, he doesn't just affirm that. He elaborates even more on it. So he says, yeah, I am. And he uses that terminology, I am, which is supposed to remind us of Exodus. When Moses sees the burning bush, he asks, who who are you? And God says, I am. And so, when they ask Jesus, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? He says, I am. But then he goes on further. Look at me in verse 62. He says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In this passage, Jesus is identifying himself with three Old Testament figures. The Messiah, or the Christ, as we just talked about, the one who will save God's people from their sin. He's also identifying himself with the suffering servant, which we just read about in Isaiah, how he did not open his mouth. And then the nail in the coffin for the the argument here is that he's identifying himself with the son of man that we read about in Daniel 7, the coming king, who will have dominion and who will exercise authority and who will judge perfectly. Jesus, by saying that he's the son of man, he indicates that he is the coming king, that he is the coming judge. He is on trial in front of a wicked judge, but he's telling him, not only am I who you say I am, but I'm also the son of man. I'm the ultimate judge. He answers truthfully, and that true answer reveals that he is the true judge, the one who will judge righteously and authoritatively. You see, Jesus' confidence here, as all these false accusations are being brought against him, his confidence is rooted in what he knows. He knows justice, even though in this moment he is being treated unjustly. He knows that justice will have the final word. Why? Because he knows the Father. He knows he's a just father, and he knows that the father is giving to him, the son, authority to judge on the last day. He knows that he's going to come back, and by knowing this, by knowing who God is, he is able to stand faithful in the midst of his suffering. The question is, do you know this? Do you know who God is? John Milton, the 17th century Puritan, says that the end of all learning is so the reason for all the learning that you do. The end of all learning is to know God. But he hasn't stopped there. He says, and out of that knowledge, to love and imitate him. The goal of all learning is to know who God is. But it's not just to know that, to take that knowledge and to love him and imitate him. And so when we suffer, let us agree with First Peter 4.19. that says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Jesus is that faithful creator. So we read in John 1. Jesus is the true and final judge. And so whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian or perhaps you're suffering today or maybe things are going well in your life, I would encourage you. To recognize that Jesus's endurance was rooted in what he knew. What do you spend your free time getting to know? Sports, games, job, hobbies, social media, podcasts, investments. What do you spend your free time getting to know? Not that any of those things are inherently bad. But if those things take priority over your pursuit of Christ, then we have an idolatry issue. Pursue Christ. Get to know who God is so that you can stand faithful in the midst of suffering. Another question for each person here is, have you entrusted your soul to the true and faithful judge? You just read that in 1 Peter 4. Those who suffer entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Have you entrusted your soul to a faithful creator, to the true judge? If the answer is yes, then you can rest assured that even though you may be suffering now, suffering may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You have this hope. This life, here's here's what you, you can rest assured in, that this life is the most suffering that you will ever experience. Why? Because Christ has entered into your suffering on your behalf. And so you no longer have to enter into that suffering. You may suffer in this world, in this life, but this is as bad as it gets for you. But if the answer is no, that you have not entrusted your soul to Jesus Christ and him alone, then this life will be the most comfort that you ever have. It will never get more comfortable than this there awaits for you an eternity of suffering. For all those who are in Christ, Christ has entered into that suffering on your behalf. But if you are not entrusting yourself to him, then there's a day when you will have to enter into that suffering, and that will be an eternity of suffering. However, the offer is extended to everyone here to embrace Christ, to repent of your sin, and to believe on him as your Lord, as your master, as your savior that offer is extended to all of us. And so we've seen a corrupt trial, we've seen a true judge. Now we see an ironic verdict. So the high priest here, Caiaphas, he recognizes what Jesus has said. We said that Jesus identified with three Old Testament figures. Caiaphas recognizes this, he knows his Bible. And so he's furious. You see this in verse 63, the high priest tore his garments. and said, what further witnesses do we need? The whole crowd just heard Jesus' response. And so there's certainly more than two witnesses. They were having trouble getting testimonies to agree. Now everyone in the room knows what Jesus just claimed. And according to Caiaphas, it's blasphemy. So he says, what more witnesses do we need? He says, what's your decision? How do you, how how does the crowd respond to this blasphemy? And they condemn him as deserving death. Remember I said earlier, they can't condemn him to death because they're under Roman rule. So they condemn him as deserving death. So they're going to send him off to Pontius Pilate so that he can sentence him to death. And while they do that, while they prepare him to go, the crowd and the guards, they beat Jesus. Verse 65, they cover his face, they strike him, and they demand him to prophesy. In Luke it elaborates a little bit more. They demand him to prophesy who hit him. And so the people in the crowd here, they, they know their Bible as well. They know what the expectations are for the coming Messiah, we read in Isaiah 11 that the Messiah shall not judge by what his eyes see, but with righteousness he shall judge. And so what's happening here, when they're putting blindfolds over him and striking him, they're mocking him. They're saying, you're the Messiah, you don't judge by what your eyes see, let's, let's put a blindfold over you. And they'd strike him, and they'd say, okay, tell us, tell us who hit you. You're the Messiah, tell us. And so in this passage here, the irony is rich. We see the high priest who acts as the man interceding on behalf of God. We See the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. And we see the crowd arresting Jesus secretly and then holding a sinful and corrupt trial to bring about false justice. And then after the verdict is read, they treat him wickedly as if he were a criminal when there is actually no transgression is in him. The sinful, wicked, and temporary judge condemns the righteous, true, and eternal judge to death. What irony. Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death. If there's any sin in you today, you're deserving of death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, which is an eternity of experiencing God's justice against your sin. However, what happened here with Jesus, the only reason I've been saying it's an injustice is because it happened to him. The one who had no sin. If he has no sin, then the wages are not death. The wages are life. Jesus had no sin. And yet they condemn him to death. A gross injustice. Had this been us, it would have been Perfect justice. We deserve every bit of it. But Jesus stood there in our place. Circling back to that kangaroo court example, how many of you here have seen The Dark Knight Rises? Okay, great trilogy of movies, highly recommend. But in The Dark Knight Rises, that's the third of the trilogy, we see a character named Jonathan Crane, also known as Scarecrow. And in this, movie. There's a scene where he presides as judge and jury over a kangaroo court. It's after Bain's mob overtakes the city and they're bringing in people of high power who are not with Bain and his people and they're sentencing them. And there's a quote that he says to one individual. He says, your guilt has been determined. This is merely a sentencing hearing. So what will it be? Death, or exile. This is merely a sentencing hearing. What will it be, death or exile? Here's the thing. Christ took both. He took both on behalf of all those who would entrust themselves to him. He died in our place so that we may live. He was exiled from God so that we may be brought near, so that we may commune with him. Because of the injustice done to Christ, we may be justified. If you are in Christ, your sin has been condemned with him. If you are in Christ, your death sentence was fulfilled by him. And if you are in Christ, despite your present suffering, you will be raised like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you for being a holy and just God. And as we experience injustice and suffering in this life, help us to entrust ourselves to a holy and just God. Thank you for accomplishing the greatest justice by paying perfectly for sin, by exacting that punishment upon your son. Jesus, thank you for being faithful, even as you suffered. Holy Spirit, help us to follow Christ's example. Help us to be reminded that we deserve death, but in Christ we have life. We ask this in his name. Amen.